0: This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin
1: we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching.
2: Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do
0: that. We don't have to have it perfect.
2: We are about getting folks together from all walks
1: of teaching life.
0: The key phrase you, you suggested is that it has to be done collectively.
1: We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> <laughs> from the University of Texas at Austin, This is the other side of campus. Hello, my name is Jen Moon. I'm an associate professor of instruction in the College of Natural Sciences. And I'm Katie Dawson, an associate professor in the College of Fine Arts and a provost teaching fellow. We're two of the rotating co-hosts for the show, a podcast for teachers who are good enough to know we could be better.
2: Today we're recording our episode at a time of deep crisis in the. US, a time when global pandemic has revealed many of the deeper problems in American society. One of the most critical is our 401 year old ongoing history of racism, police violence, and social inequality. We people say. Enough, is enough. Enough. Faculty from University of Texas, including to today's guest, Dr. Panil Joseph, are doing essential work, bringing to the public the history and contemporary implications of these issues.
0: Depending on how we tell that story, that's really very, very important for whether or not injustice continues, whether or not mass incarceration continues.
2: Today, we wanna talk to Peniel about the intersections between his research, activism, and teaching. Specifically, we're gonna ask him about his thoughts on how every university teacher can be actively working to cultivate a more just, equitable, and anti-racist learning environment for all of
1: our students. To build community in a way that challenges everything you know, and it's gonna
2: challenge everything I stand
1: for. So before we get to the questions, let us briefly introduce Dr. Peniel Joseph. Peniel holds a joint professorship appointment at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, and the History Department in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. He is also the founding director of the LBJ School's Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. His career focus has been on Black Power Studies, which encompasses interdisciplinary fields such as Africana Studies, Law and Society, Women's and Ethnic Studies, and Political Science. Peniel has written a number of award-winning books, with his most recent book entitled The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. Peniel, thanks so much for taking time to talk with us today. I know we're running short on time, so we're gonna jump right into it. So in our faculty learning community, we talk a lot about the fact that who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. How, how does your life experience shape who you are as a teacher?
0: So I'm the son of Haitian immigrants who came to the United States in 1965. I grew up in Brooklyn and Queens, New York in the 1970s and 80s. My mother is a a feminist and a a trade union person and activist. And I was on my first picket line in elementary school. And she's uh, the person who taught me about Black history and Haitian history and the history of women who were political radicals and revolutionaries. So that's the kind of upbringing I had uh, in New York City. And I grew up in a really hard time in New York City, where it's very racially segregated, racially divisive. A lot of police brutality against Black people. Went to a segregated elementary and junior high school, and then a predominantly white high school where there was a lot of racism. So all those things absolutely shaped me and shaped my teaching. You know, I grew up in a household that was very interested in human rights, but had all these different cultures that were connected to it in terms of Haiti, and my mother speaks Spanish and speaks French and speaks Haitian. In a way, I thought I was gonna be more of an organizer, somebody who was doing that as a living, much more so than a teacher. So it definitely, my background during the 80s and 90s really informs my teaching.
1: Hearing you tell your story, it's sort of like this is the this is the beginning of an activist story. I mean, <laughs> it's like you can kind of you you think you know the ending to that, and yet here you are teaching in academia. What? How did that transition take place? Was that something? It clearly, wasn't something you were thinking about from the beginning.
0: Oh no! Yes, it wasn't. So really, I was the person organizing for Black History in my high school. I was in a lot of marches and demonstrations for social justice, anti-death penalty anti-racism organizing. I went to a state school, Stony Brook University in New York. Then I, thought about, I thought, thought about teaching elementary school. I thought about teaching high school, especially in predominantly black areas. And then I just encountered different mentors, black mentors, um, some, some, some white professors too, but it was really a Nigerian and an African-American professor who told me about the academy and that I should at least consider it. I had n- never known any professors and I didn't know what a PhD was or tenure or anything. And really from there, I uh, went to Temple University and got into a PhD program in history and was still doing a bunch of activism around Mumia Bujamal and getting Mumia off the of death row. And there was Kensington Welfare Rights Association organizations. There was a lot of anti racism work. And this is early nineties. I started graduate school in 93, and then found that you could really potentially leverage the university for your social activism too. And so once I saw that, that became a a much um, bigger vehicle. So unlike some people in the academy, I haven't had the guilt of being in the academy and not being a full-time organizer because I realized there are certain roles you're better suited to temperamentally. And so like really trying to write and investigate and research then be a mentor to students and continue to be a lifelong student myself has been the right role for me. Yeah.
1: And and can I ask a follow-up question? I mean, thinking about now how you approach your classroom, you know, new group of students come in in the fall and what are some things that you do to kind of allow their, their experience, their life experience to enter into the conversation? I mean, I'm thinking particularly, you know, in the, in the sciences, we sometimes feel like well, we don't have to handle any of this. We don't have to talk about this because we're talking about science and that's cold, hard fact, which, you know, honestly, we know is not true. But how do, how would we do that? You know, I don't teach social justice. I teach genetics. Would you have any advice for how I might start this conversation or allow their experiences into the classroom? Yeah,
0: no, I always start by asking people to share me their story, very similar to what we're doing today. Like share, like what got you to this classroom? Even from a very personal, personalist people want to share in terms of just their intimate you know, childhood, adolescence, was there an experience, something that got you here? So I think when you find out like where people are coming from, are they first generation? Are they first gen college students? Is this the first time they've been on a campus like this? Is this their first setting in a predominantly white campus, PWI, like UT Austin is? So I think I find out from them why they're here and that always sets up a good base of sort of common purpose. Yeah.
2: knowing that you're working on issues around race, justice, equity, probably whiteness, which comes along with that and other Mm -hmm. things. So are there particular strategies or ways that you really sort of make the space for your students to bring in their lived experiences and identities into the classroom? Yeah, I think
0: I try, one, through us sharing like our own stories, all of our intimate stories, our backgrounds, our biographies, basically. Two, through memoir. You know, We always use memoir in whatever class I use even though we use history as well. But I think students are very interested and connected to memoirs. So we've done Dear America by Jose Antonio Vargas. We've done When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Cullen-Cullors. So I'm always interested in using memoir. And then also writing, sometimes journaling, uh, sometimes where it's um, certainly connected to what we're reading, but also how are people feeling. In other classes, I've had people do oral histories of uh, their own families. and how their families have interfaced with racial, social, political justice and injustice in ways they might not have considered or conceived because parents and grandparents and families a lot of times don't share those oral histories with each other. I was lucky to to be in a family where my mom did share those histories, but many people don't, right? So then there's things like visual documentaries and, you know, everything from Eyes on the Prize to Ava DuVernay's the 13th, to stuff on Khalif Browder, stuff on Ferguson. Yeah, all, all those things, I think, give people a context where they can they can feel comfortable about where they're trying to go vis-a-vis the course.
2: And that makes me think a lot, um, Peniel, about the fact that you have... Interdisciplinary spaces. I know that's a big part mm-hmm. of, of your work and your effort, which is so important, I think, right now in the academy that we aren't just these like discrete places, right? We're humans who incorporate and integrate lots of things in our learning. And when I think about making social change, it, it has to be an integrated effort, right? It can't just be scholars like yourself. I mean, we're all complicit and and need to be active and engaging in these kinds of conversations. So as you're thinking about some of those different sort of teaching methods, do you have a sense of how your students who come to your courses from outside of maybe history or outside of LBJ, how they might, you know, the references they're making to their own course of study in other spaces or ways that, I don't know if there might be some good things for our folks who are listening to here to think about how those students outside of some of those particular courses who are in there to learn might be activated in ways they're thinking critically about their practices in other disciplines.
0: Yeah, absolutely. My courses are always interdisciplinary. There's a lot of feminism in there in terms of black feminism and, and feminism by women of color. So in a lot of ways, when you think about intersectionality and this idea of intersectional justice, I mean, that goes methodologically too. So we could do history, feminism, political science, sociology, anthropology, law and society, ethnic studies, Africana studies. So bring all of that uh, there and they can interface sometimes it overlaps with what they've been doing but a lot of times it doesn't and i think that gives them a different perspective right it gives them a different perspective um sometimes we do a lot of easy reading sometimes it's hard Um, sometimes they're inundated as a historian you know i'll teach a graduate seminar this coming fall I, i think i've whittled it down to eight books in 16 weeks last in the spring we did 16 books in 16 weeks and so I've, I've had to learn too, so sometimes less is more. So you give them reading that they, they, can, they can handle because as a, in a disciplinary field, my field of history, you're, you're probably, comparably to other fields, you, many people will feel inundated with, with reading both primary and secondary sources, but that, that's the discipline and that's how I was trained, right? So when I was taking graduate courses, we were reading two books a week per class um plus articles. So like in a given semester, you and you learned you you learned to, to to read it that fast. I wouldn't call it speed reading. You just learned to get the work done. Um, because you wanted to be part of the academy, right? Now do teach in interdisciplinary fashion so I can see I have to do less, give them less reading, unless maybe it's a course just with PhD students in history or something.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the center you direct? So the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy, in what ways does your center foster a community of faculty and students with common research interests?
0: Yeah, you know, we're we're growing and building. We've been around for five years and we're trying to get new new resources. Part of being connected to the PTF is really trying to get more interdisciplinary cohorts of undergraduates and graduates. So we do a few things. I mean we have undergraduate and graduate fellows who are able to come from a variety of disciplines and they take a do a one-year fellowship where they end up doing some kind of policy project policy proposal at the intersection of sort of anti-racism and vulnerability and injustice so that could be anything from domestic violence to immigration to healthcare outcomes voting rights some of these students have come from the business school the law school sociology, anthropology, history, political government. Uh, We're interested in medical vulnerabilities and anti-racism. So there's so many different perspectives. And when it comes to faculty, we now have faculty fellows who we've invited to be a part of the center, but we've done that largely through convening dozens of seminars and book talks and conferences over the last five years, where we brought people like Henry Louis Gates Jr. we brought Sherilyn Eiffel. Khalil Mohammed, Charlene, Hunter, galt we brought all these names, but also local younger, you know, activist scholars too—to convene both at the LBJ School and other parts of campus this uh, conversation around anti-racism, racial justice in in a cascading way, mm-hmm. where we talk about gender and race and class and sexuality and geography. Um, so those are those are some of the things, and really to make that something that is um, central to both the School of Public Affairs but the College of Liberal Arts as well. So we're doing it uh, along among a number of different venues and then we also have a graduate, students can take it as a graduate or undergraduate um, class as well. So there's, there's, it's really been a, along a number of different access points.
2: I'm really interested in that teaching. I, I teach myself a, a course or two that's an undergraduate graduate combination, interdisciplinary. We were working with the art galleries of Black Studies to think about access and inclusion, and we partnered with a um, a nursing course looking at ethics in healthcare. So that was all coming together, uh, and then of course COVID happened, and we all did it online, and it was amazing. The students did this incredible. Piece on Afrofuturism with the current exhibition in the Christian Green Gallery right now that really was dynamite and around healthcare. And I'm happy to share it with you if you want to check it out. It's pretty neat. I'd love to.
0: I'd love to see
2: it. I have some students who will so love what you're. I want to send like a bunch of students to you like immediately that um, that are going to take this time. But um, but I'd love to hear again thinking of this sort of teaching tip access space for for folks like how when you have these undergraduate and graduate students learning cohorts working together around a question or a problem and and from lots of different disciplines that have different sort of ways of working and making meaning to some extent. um, What are some ways you you set that up and and get all those folks in to to Mm -hmm. work together?
0: Well, One is um, methods and and sort of talking about methods, different methods of data gathering and archival gathering. I tell them how historians do it in terms of going to the archive, going to primary sources, whether that's oral histories, newspapers, federal documents, state documents, legal documents, people's private papers. But then also the interdisciplinary way in terms of how other fields do it. You can do it through oral histories. um, You can do it through people's uh, memoirs. Um, you could do it by collecting data that's not necessarily about an individual, but that data helps you understand, even as something minute as what was the weather like on the the day you're trying to investigate. What was the person or the family or the community's access to food, access to water, access to clean air? You know, how, how does this interface, uh, with longer histories of, of different communities, whether they're African American or Latinx or Anglo or indigenous? So all those things, methods is part of it. And then two, in terms of telling them all that we all have uh, narratives, right? So history is really all about narrative um, and history is about stories and history is about stories um, we tell to ourselves first and foremost, and then we tell the world, but that there are always these um, competing narratives, right? So we have I think one of the interesting parts of 2020 is how so many narratives of American exceptionalism have come tumbling down and crumbling right before our very eyes in ways that even a few months ago, there was a select group of people who understood that these narratives were extremely flawed narratives, but there wasn't a massive understanding of that. So if you had asked somebody six months ago, Why don't you like the Confederate flag? Somebody else might say, well, I'm not quite sure, but it offends some people for some reason. And on a more positive level, something like Juneteenth. Very recently, very few people knew about Juneteenth. I grew up in New York City, so I actually happened to be somebody who grew up in communities where Juneteenth was actually acknowledged alongside of Kwanzaa and other things. So Juneteenth was not something where I was like, oh my gosh, what is that? But people were, you know, from Texas were in New York, Black people. So they brought it to New York, so you understood. But the fact that you have Juneteenth and basically being recognized nationally in June and people talking about making that a federal holiday, including myself, really, really extraordinary. So this shows you the power of narrative. So, so much of it, if we tell ourselves a story about women, about men, about boys, girls, but then Black people, white people, Indigenous, Latinx, depending on how we tell that story, that's really very, very important for whether or not injustice continues, whether or not mass incarceration continues. The story we tell ourselves about immigrants shapes immigration policy. The story we tell ourselves about trans people and queer people and gay people shapes policy, right? So if we tell a story that says there's these brutal histories that happened but we are trying to create this just community, this beloved community. That's one thing, and that's gonna impact policy too. But if we tell ourselves a story, and again, the story of American exceptionalism, so much of it is based, it's based on lies. And if we tell ourselves that story, it's really incredibly hard for us not to reproduce injustice and reproduce those lies, right? And, and one story is Confederate monuments, but another story is just American monuments and our built environment, including at UT. So now people are taking Professor Ted Gordon's tour, which I've taken too. Part of this is, it's a narrative war. So part of telling the students and the undergrads and grads, everybody can relate to a story, a narrative, because everyone has one. We all have a narrative of why we're here today. And our job as scholars is to say, is this narrative true? And if the parts of it, if there are certain parts of it that are not true or that are contested, why, you know? And, and what does that tell us about ourselves? So I think that gets people really on the same page. You know, I'm convinced everybody is a writer, whether or not they write or not. Everybody has a story to tell and everybody's narrating their life and their story constantly.
1: In terms of our own history at our university, there's so much of that. I mean, I live in the science buildings, And there's a lot over there that I just had no clue about. And and so it's helpful now to understand that my students probably did know all about this. And, And it was shaping how they felt about being in those buildings and being on campus. And it's something that I just was not even, it was totally off my radar. So one nice thing that's coming out of all of this is that these things are being shared more widely. Like we're actually having conversations about it. Or at least I'm like looking up. I don't know (laughs) if it could be just me. But I just it's it's helpful now that I understand. Okay, I get this now. I understand that this this is this building and and the history behind it is really important for me to know, just on a really practical level. I wanna, is it okay, Katie, throw in this last question? Yeah, please. Because I'm really curious about this because I'm sure you have many. But I wanted to ask about like a moment or an assignment or a conversation that really sticks in your mind, either because you wish you had done something differently or because it was kind of like a, you know, an aha moment or some exchange with a student, something along those lines that you'd like to share?
0: I think I've had a few of those me. I think one had to do with having people watch Spike Lee's do the right thing and having parts of the class either defend or critique Mookie and Mookie's actions. It's always Spike Lee. Spike Lee is so good. And some, I, I grew up on Spike Lee. So at the end of that movie, he throws a garbage can through Sal's pizzeria. And I think it was very illuminating for me, students and the arguments of sort of defending or denouncing for that. And we were in a mixed race class. We had a lot of white students and black students. And some students were really upset that he did that. These were my white students. Um, but for them, they were upset because they felt that him and Sal had a friendship, so they weren't really thinking about the systemic <laughs> issues. They had really looked at the, the the personal friendship. And my students who supported it, and these were the black students for the most part, but there were some white students. They were very upset about Radio Rahim being killed by the police, being being murdered by the police. It showed me a whole lot in the sense of that it it was in, it was very very interesting because the students who were upset that Mookie, that character through they, they felt hopeful about the Sal-Mookie friendship. You know, they felt racial optimism about that. But they really didn't necessarily connect the violence to the death of Radio Rahim. And when we talked about it in class, they'd be like, oh, yeah, like they compartmentalized that. His life was compartmentalized. And then for the students who really were very, very upset and they were like, Spike Lee's Mookie character was justified in his outrage. All they could talk about was Radio (laughs) Raheem. They had really identified with that character, right? So for them, that interracial friendship, they felt that Sal was condescending to Mookie, Sal was hitting on Mookie's sister, even though that seems consensual in the movie. They just, they ignored that. And so it really showed me, and it's very interesting in terms of how we live now, just a lot of different things about how when you think about narratives people are much more attuned or at least at times white students were more attuned to one aspect of you know what's going on and they they actually had their hope and their optimism but when it came to this young black man being killed that was really airbrushed out of it like they saw that we all saw the same movie i, I think radio Rahim is a character a lot of whites just couldn't identify with. Whereas Mookie, Mookie they could identify with. And they were upset that Mookie didn't try to defend Sal because it it had been the police who killed Radio Raheem. So it just really showed me a lot. I think my aha moment was more about, depending on student backgrounds, personal narrative a lot of times overwhelmed uh, systemic injustices, it, it, it overwhelmed it, and also it let me see sometimes people wanted progress even at the expense of justice, and really also made me see like how do I teach this in, in a better way where where Radio Rahim's life does matter, and it made me redouble my efforts to use different methods to make people want to at least identify with this person's humanity, irrespective of whether they agree with everything he does or not. Because there are things that Radio Rahim does that I disagree with, but it was like, he's still a human being. So that's my aha. And I love Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep and all the stuff that I've shown classes too, but Do the Right Thing is, is so important. And now he's got The Five Bloods, which is really brilliant as well. And that's a real good, that's our best movie on black folks in Vietnam ever, um, because that story still hasn't been told. and. Black people died disproportionately in Vietnam, and that still hasn't been told either.
1: I have to take
2: this moment as the uh, as the arts person on the conversation to say, what a gift I think. You know, one of the roles that arts does for us in mm-hmm. society is illuminating those narratives. And I find the distancing of it, like I, I might not be able to talk about that in my own life, but I can look at this analysis and this character and and it sometimes surface that in a really problematic way. I wouldn't admit that I don't have a sense of that structural racism to you if you ask me directly, but I can certainly reveal it in my interpretation and reading of this film and how it also gives us a way in, yeah, to, to kind of reteach or to reconnect or think, okay, this is this is where this is not hitting these folks yet, sort of distancing that the arts give us sometimes to, as a mediating tool, surface a lot of both knowledge and lived experience and sometimes really complex understandings that we need to do some intervention with or at least work towards students understanding where that that experience is coming from. So Absolutely.
1: Neil, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Katie, that was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, and timely
2: and important, I think, at any time, but particularly right now, to think about narrative and story and how how all of our students and we ourselves have stories, right? We ourselves have histories and stories that we may or may not be as aware of, right? And making space for story and making space for thinking about where stories come from and how they're Mm -hmm. shaped by really particular histories and experiences. I mean, I think that's that effort towards multiple perspectives and where perspectives come from and what happens when, you know, our textbooks, our K-12 education has a very particular story or lens, particularly around race and justice, our history of enslavement of Black people, of Indigenous people. I mean, I think it's really interesting to consider how, there are a lot of histories in the room, whether our course is on history or not.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And one of the things I really resonated with me when he's talking about, we're all writers, whether we're actually writing stuff down or not. And and that's just getting to your point, you know, talking about personal histories and our own narrative about our own lives. And and to be aware that when we walk into a classroom, that narrative doesn't stop. We're, we're writing the narrative of our students. I have such a n- number of students. They're all pre-meds. They're all first years. They're all like this. This is how I need to teach them because this is what they're hoping to get out of it. And so when he told that story about the movie he had shown and how we had these two populations of students with very different takeaways, it really made me think about my own classroom and what I'm giving to them in terms of content. And I need to ask them what they're taking away from, you know, it seems so obvious, but but they maybe they they surprise you every time, you know, to ask what it is that you're taking away from this. What did you hear?
2: I really appreciate that, Jen. It's that great reminder about reflective and I'd even push it to reflexive practice, right? We need to be accountable to how we're making meaning in something it's a rigorous skill that we and but that we all eventually need to do when we make our arguments on paper or when we do a presentation you know it's those are the skills that we're all practicing across every discipline is how to make an argument uh, where that argument comes from contextualizing it communicating your information to others and in multiple ways we don't just write we also speak and In my field, we perform with our bodies as well, Uh, (laughs) right? Can't can't forget that. But yeah, you make me think a lot about the importance of of making time for reflection and then the different ways that that can happen. And I love a kind of value added to that. Then after we make that reflection, asking students to do the next level of reflection on that. So what did you hear? Why might you have heard that? What are these different perspectives representing? Why might these perspectives be in the room in this way? That's sort of almost neutralizing. I, you know, I don't care what your perspective was. I mean, I do, but you know, I'm gonna step away from that. Now just think about where perspectives even come from on this
1: issue that we're talking about today and why. And I think it's particularly important in the sciences to be talking like this because we people come into the sciences. I mean, people talk about science is all fact. There's no emotion. I don't, I'm super objective, and it's just 100% not true. (laughs) It's not true in research, it's not true in publications, you cannot avoid being human. And so even bringing this to our awareness, that everything we do is based on perception, and is contextualized by our own experiences. And we have to acknowledge that on the front end of all of this. And particularly, we have so much to learn from the other side of campus. (laughs) but just that there's other parts of campus where this is constantly part of the dialogue and it it is not so much in the sciences and I think it really needs to be.
2: I love that as work that we're making for our students and I love that also as work we're making for ourselves because we also as bodies aren't neutral, you know? We also have a set of experiences and a way of learning and certainly probably to be successful as an academic, you know, we do certain things reasonably well. Like we probably can listen to a lecture and spit that information back out on a test pretty well or have the right vocabulary that's going to be asked of this discipline or domain or, you know, some faculty have very different journeys to be an academic than others. I don't want to generalize that, but somewhere along the way, you've developed the skill set to to be here at UT and be a professor or or a teacher at UT, which is great. And sort of recognizing that that comes into play too, you know, that we may have those different experiences or process things slightly differently or have had a different morning than our students have had coming into the room today. So it also makes me think, yeah, about how in the simplest ways how do we also take moments maybe at the top of class maybe at the end of class and these don't have to be long but to ground each other with each other to be present i mean there's so much research about how important it is to create community at the top or to find a time at the end you know it's like is it a one minute paper where you write something you're taking or a question you're still wondering about or some other way of kind of also reflecting and thinking back on what the learning has been each day as well (laughs)
1: <laughs> we'll just talk on and on. We can do this for hours and we have done. Yeah. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you. Thank you.